please do pick up a Bible if you haven't got one. There's some down the middle aisle. We are returning to the book of 1 Peter this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, so do track that one down now. Um, the old 18th century pastor, Jonathan Edwards, once delivered a now famous and much-read sermon called Heaven is a World of Love. And it's a profound and beautiful sermon about the new heaven and the new earth and the ways in which the love of God will just fill and flood that new world and all those who dwell there. Heaven is a world of love. That's very believable. But what if I said that the church here and now is meant to be a taster of that future place? that the church is meant to be known as a place of love. What would you think? Would you, maybe you would laugh. Maybe you would smile. Would it make you glad? Would it make you grumble? You say, well, we've got a long way to go here. Would it make you ponder? How do we get there? How do we grow? Well, you can prepare to respond in one or all of those ways this morning because uh, today we're going to see the Apostle Peter is here to tell us how the church should, in fact, very much be a place of love. And he's also going to tell us how to get there. We're only going to look at one verse, uh, but in it we have God's blueprint for growing a church of love. Now, as many of you will have noticed, although not so much today actually, but spring has most definitely arrived, the, uh, the sun has been out, and the bulbs have been growing, perhaps Uh, You've seen flowers appearing, maybe some that you planted many weeks or months ago. Now, every keen gardener knows that uh, it's important to get plants into the right soil in order for them to grow and thrive. But maybe, like me, you're not so much of a keen gardener or not so much of a knowledgeable gardener. A couple of years back, I was asked by someone very close to me to move a fuchsia and a rose bush from the back garden into the front And I was in a bit of a hurry, and in my haste, I paid very little attention to where I was replanting these bushes, or I paid very little attention to the soil that they were going into. I was in a hurry. I was just really content that they had the appearance of being replanted. And they looked okay for a few days as they stuck up out of the hard, dry, stony places that I'd found for them. Uh, But within a week, they were decidedly withered, And within a month, they were dead and gone, never to be seen again. Now, in the end, it's not super significant whether we know what soil to plant a fuchsia or a rosebush into, but it does matter immensely that together we know what kind of soil a church of love will thrive in. And 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, is here to tell us in, in exactly what kind of soil Love between Christians grows. So let's, before we read it, let's pray and ask that God would help us and speak to us. Father, we pray now as we come to your word, would you speak to us through it? Would you give us ears to hear what you have to say to us? And Lord, where we, where we hear things that are, that are hard for us to do, Lord, places where we feel weak to follow and obey your word, Lord, would you remind us that your grace is sufficient that your Holy Spirit is at work within us to bring about remarkable change. May your Spirit be with us now as we hear the preaching of your word. 
Amen. Here we go then. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Peter writes this. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Okay, you'll notice that verse 8 begins with a finally, which might seem a little bit odd because you may have noticed we're only halfway through the book of Peter. So why finally? Is, is Peter really starting to wrap everything up? Well, not everything, but he is wrapping up this particular section of his letter, which began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 13. Since chapter 1, verse 13, he has been laying out the principal duties of Christians living as strangers and aliens in a hostile world. We've seen that we're called to be holy as God is holy, and we're to conduct ourselves honorably in our public lives, under governments and authorities, in our work lives, in our home lives, in all of these places, living as servants of God for God. And now finally, Peter turns his attention to how we ought to live together as a church. And that's what he means by now all of you. He's now addressing the whole church in their shared life together. Now, I'll be honest, I've often breezed over this verse and given it very little thought. It can seem strange at first that Peter is going to say all that he needs to say about the relationships that we ought to have with each other in the church in a single sentence. It just seems like a little list, like something of nothing. He gave five verses to talk about our civil conduct. He gave at least four verses to talk about our work lives. He gave seven verses to talk about our married lives, but only one verse to life together in the church. Well, prepare to be taken by surprise like I was this week because this one verse packs a mighty punch. Opening up this verse is like watching a firework illuminate the sky for miles around, in every direction, and wondering how something so big and bright and amazing could come out of a package so small. This is a firework verse, or at least that's how I found it to be this week. So, let's examine it more closely. The first thing to notice is that verse 8 is not just a random list of virtues Peter feels he must mention. He's not just picking his top five tips for a successful, healthy life in the church. This verse is what's known as a chiasm. That's something used all over the Bible. You don't need to remember the term, but it's something used all over the Bible. It means that this verse has a very special symmetry. The first item and the last item are a pair. Have unity of mind. Have a humble mind. They both address our minds and the way that we think. The second item and the fourth item are also a pair. Have sympathy, have a tender heart. They both address our hearts and the way we feel. But the most important thing you've got to know about a chiasm is that the thing at the center is the most important element of all. It gives us the theme and the purpose of everything around it. And planted right at the center of this verse is brotherly love. So not only is Peter telling us that loving each other is central to how we're to live together in the church, 
But like the experienced gardener who plants their bulbs in the right kind of soil, he wants to draw our attention to the kind of soil that should be packed in around our love to make it grow and thrive. So each of these ingredients are necessary and vital for growing a church of love. We're going to tackle them in three parts this morning. We're going to see that a church of love grows in the soil of how we see each other, how we think about each other, and how we feel towards each other. How we see each other, how we think about each other, how we feel towards each other. So first up, how we see each other. Love for each other, as we've seen, stands at the center here. And the kind of love Peter is talking about, in particular, is brotherly love. Much more than just the love of friends or comrades or the, maybe the kind of love and affection you might feel for certain close uh, uh, colleagues at work. It's much more rich and intimate than that. This word, brotherly love, this kind of love, often appears in uh, John's Gospel especially, to describe the kind of love that the father has for the son. A family love between the father and the son. It's also used to describe the father's love for us and Jesus' love for his disciples all throughout John's gospel. This love is a distinctly Christian love. It's based on the deepest possible ties, deeper than even natural family ties, because it comes from the knowledge that we've been given new birth together into God's spiritual family. We have become brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, let's just think for a moment about how highly this should raise other Christians in our esteem, of how much honor and care we should bestow on each other in our thinking. When we see each other, Wherever we are, one of the first things that we should think to ourselves is, there is my brother, there's my sister, and I love them and I'm grateful to God for them. After all, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, uh, we're told that Christ himself is not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. So how, can, how then can we be in any way ashamed of each other or even prone to to falling out with each other. William Harrell, a commentator on the book of 1 Peter, says this, malicious thoughts about and vicious actions towards others in the body of Christ can only take hold of us when we allow ourselves to forget the vital knowledge that those others are our brethren in the Lord. How much easier it is to honor and cherish other believers when we bear in mind that they, like ourselves, have been bought by the blood of the Savior and are children of our Heavenly Father. Brotherly love is what we're to have for each other. Now, brotherly love is also a distinctly affectionate love. The word here could also be translated brotherly affection. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 22, Peter spoke of us having, a, or ha us having been born again to a sincere and earnest brotherly love. In Romans 12, verse 10, Paul tells us to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So faith in Christ, which is what we have, should always lead to a warm-hearted love 
towards other Christians. Now, every local church has its weaknesses. But for some churches, a particularly prominent weakness is a lack of warm-hearted affection demonstrated between believers when they gather. Some church gatherings are so formal that you'd think that the people in the room don't even know each other. I grew up in a church that had a tendency to be like that sometimes. Now, by God's grace, I don't believe that that's the case here for our church family. Uh, But we can still grow in this. As Paul encouraged the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. I love that God himself teaches us to love each other. But then Paul says, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. There are always ways for us to grow in love and affection for each other more and more, especially because brotherly love is to be the hallmark of Christian fellowship. It should be the, it should be the standout thing that's displayed every time that we come together. And there may be people here with us, even this morning, who see the warm love and affection demonstrated between other Christians in the room, but who don't personally experience that same warm welcome and love when they come in here each Sunday. Now, it's good and right that we're glad to see our brothers and sisters on a Sunday morning, that we want to spend time with particular people when we come together to care for them and encourage them. But is everyone included? Because every believer is our brother and sister. There are no closer ties possible than the ones we share with every other Christian. And God calls us here in verse 8 to love each and every one with great warmth and affection. So as an encouragement for us, let's be sure when we're together that we're looking around before, during, and after our service and beyond Sundays as well, asking ourselves, who's not being included right now? Who's on their own? Who don't I know too well yet? Who can I go and encourage? And let's then go to them and demonstrate our love for them as brothers and sisters. So a church of love grows, first of all, in the soil of how we see each other. Real Christ-like love blossoms and blooms when we recognize that every believer is our blood-bought brother or sister in Christ. The second way a church of love grows, Peter tells us, is in the soil of how we think about each other. Topping and tailing the verse, Peter calls us to have a unity of mind and a humble mind. So first of all, unity of mind. That that literally means to be of the same mind, to be like-minded. But what does that mean? Does it mean that we have to think in the same way about everything? That we have to like the same foods, share the same hobbies, listen to the same music, and share the same political opinions? Well, thankfully, no. Not at all. The unity of mind that Peter's referring to is a unity in two particular things. It's unity in truth and purpose. In truth and purpose. And and we know that because the New Testament continually calls Christians to be united in these two things. United in the truth and united in purpose. We're united in the truth because together we affirm and treasure the gospel of Jesus Christ. We share a commitment to the truth that God has entrusted to us. Philippians 1 verse 27, Paul says, 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So here's, how you, here's how, part of how we live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith, for the truths of the gospel. So we're to be united in our gospel convictions. We're to think of each other as those who share with us a life-changing belief in the good news of Jesus Christ. As Ed Clowney puts it, Christians find oneness of understanding in the gospel of the cross. Now in practice, this means that we're to be a people who passionately embrace the truth of God's word. It means being a people who come together with an eagerness to hear God speak. It means being a people who love to think about and delight in the very gospel that has created our oneness together. It means we help each other understand what God has revealed in his word. And hand in hand with that, we also help each other to reject the world's false beliefs and ideas Uh, those things that Peter called those futile ways that we've been ransomed from back in chapter 1, verse 18. Unity of mind involves being united together in the truth that God has entrusted to us. Unity of mind also involves being united, as I've said, in purpose, so that we're eager to live out together what we have believed together. Fixing our eyes together on Jesus, on knowing him and serving him and awaiting his return. That's really been one of Peter's big focuses all throughout the letter. Not just that we would believe certain truths, but that that we would believe them and live in the light of them. Preparing our minds for action. Setting our hope fully on Christ, chapter 1, verse 13. Serving one another with a deep and fervent love, chapter 4, verse 8. The church is is not a place where we compete to be the best Christian, where we fight over roles and we try to outdo one another in being impressive. No, rather than competing with each other, we're to strive to work together to fulfill God's will for our lives. So we consider how can we help each other to grow in fruitful Christian service? This is a really different set of values to the world around us, which loves individualism and which tells us in a million different ways, just do your own thing and be true to yourself. And that's why I think Peter includes humility as a vital element in how we're to think about each other. Have a humble mind, he says, because to have united minds depends utterly on us having humble minds. Or as someone once put it, if there is to be like-mindedness, there must be lowly-mindedness. Now, it's hard to find a better or or more helpful definition, I think, of humility than than the one we find in Philippians chapter 2. So let me just read from verses 3 to 7 to set kind of fresh in our minds what this humility looks like. Paul writes there, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant Than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, 
did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, humility is not about putting ourselves down all the time, just thinking about how worthless we are. It's about putting away selfish ambition. It's a willingness to take the lower place, to do the less desirable acts of service. Think of, uh, think of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and to put the interests of others before our own. And I, I think I know there are so many beautiful, inspirational examples of this kind of humility right here in this church, especially every Sunday. People who sweep the floors, take out the rubbish, change nappies, uh, offer to put up banners in the rain, clear the snow, talk to those who are sad and alone, and, and so much more, so much more. Humility is a beautiful thing, and it's a vital ingredient for growing a church of love. In contrast, the biggest unity killer in any church is pride and self-assertion. Pride kills love. Because when we're proud, we think far too highly of ourselves and we come to despise and look down on other people. But when we think modestly and humbly about ourselves, then genuine, loving esteem for others is allowed to, again, blossom and bloom. Love is humility in action. Love is humility in action. Just think of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now, this is utterly countercultural. It's totally at odds with the business world with celebrity culture, with consumer culture, and the believe-in-yourself culture that we live in. The world we live in today prizes self-fulfillment. Its mantra is, put yourself first, follow your heart, fulfill your dreams, do what's best for you. But as God's holy and beloved people, we are called to prize something entirely different, to prize the needs of others. Because we follow the one who stooped down to lift up the towel and the basin. The one who came down from heaven to be lifted up on a cross. But let's be honest, following in his footsteps is not easy. Especially in the area of humility. Uh, I'll just be honest and share with you from my own life. At, at home, one of my biggest battles with pride right now is with my desire for everything to go my own way according to my own timetable. And when other people, especially small people, get in the way of that, I get irritable. Now, in my heart of hearts, I don't want to be like that. But the same sinful pride keeps resurfacing all the time. Now, funnily enough, maybe you can relate to this, but, but it doesn't surface like that when I'm here. But unfortunately, it does surface in other ways. Here at church, my battle with pride surfaces in a selfish desire to impress people. Now, this is bizarre. I want to, in my mind, often is this thought, I want to impress people with my service. 
when I'm supposed to be loving and serving people with my service. It's, it's like pride is this slippery snake. You try and squash it down in one place and it pops up somewhere else, rearing its ugly head in a whole different kind of way. A genuinely humble mind can seem really desirable to us, especially as we look at Jesus and his humility. Jonathan Edwards once said, the pleasures of humility are really the most refined, inward and exquisite delights in the world. It can look wonderful, but it can look so unattainable. Humility can seem so impossibly out of reach. So what do we do? What do you do if, like me, pride is rearing its head all over the place? Well, the best thing we can do is to cry out to God for help. Because he hasn't left us alone in our battle with pride. He calls us to be humble. And at the very same time, he promises to give us grace. And we'll see this in a few weeks or months' time. But 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Here's these two things together. Peter writes, God says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility is not a natural fruit for a, for a, sin, a sinful human being. It's a supernatural fruit. But fortunately, we have the supernatural spirit of God at work within us. We have God's powerful promises to give us grace to help us in our pursuit of humility. With his help, we can keep battling the slippery snake of pride and we can keep on putting on Christ-like humility in the ways that we think about each other. So what would this humility look like in practice? Well, let me just give you a few ideas. It would include, particularly when we're together and when we're apart, Thinking about other people more than I think about myself would include listening to other people more than I talk about myself. would include being eager to see others grow. Being willing to encourage others and rejoice in other people's successes. Not being easily offended. It would include serving others, even in menial ways, without needing recognition or thanks. It would mean being unconcerned with how well I think other people are serving me. Now our minds, we're thinking about our minds here, our minds are an incredible gift from God. Uh, they are brilliantly designed for thinking and creating and problem solving and so much more. They're also meant to be this incredible tool for loving other people as well. But we've got to recognize they're built to run on humility, not pride. Our minds, our thought life only fulfills its true potential for love when we use it to think about others more highly than ourselves. So, we've seen that a church of love grows, first of all, in the soil of how we see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Second, it grows in the soil of how we think about each other as those who are united in truth and purpose counting each other as more significant than ourselves. The third and final ingredient for growing a church of love is found in how we feel towards each other. It's interesting how some of this ties in with what Nathan was sharing from the conference earlier this week as well. It's uh, what we think and what we feel and what we do are all important uh, in God's mind. In this final pair, 
Peter turns to address our hearts and specifically the way we feel. Because when it comes to loving each other, our emotions matter. We're not just called to think and act in loving ways. We're also called to engage our hearts. First of all, in sympathy. Uh, The word sympathy literally means to feel with someone, to feel with them. It's the ability to feel what another person feels. It's a readiness to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And it's a quality that's meant to be especially evident in the church amongst God's people. We of all people in all the world should be a sympathetic people. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26, If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. Now, sympathy isn't just an emotion, of course. To be sympathetic is actually to respond to someone else's situation and to enter into their experience of it, to share their joy or to try and lessen their sorrow. Jesus is the ultimate example of this. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that as our great high priest, he continually sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. And because he sympathizes, we're also told he offers us mercy and grace to help us in our times of need. It's as if first his heart goes out to us. He understands. He can relate to our struggles. And then as a result, he extends his hand to help us. And we're called to care for each other in the same way, to sympathize with others, especially when they struggle, to offer them comfort and help. Now, this is another opportunity for us to examine ourselves this morning and to ask, where does my heart go when I see another Christian struggling? Am I willing to enter into their pain with them? Or am I more prone to be awkward or insensitive or indifferent? to avoid them or even to look down on them for not being strong enough to make it on their own. Now, I've got to confess again, this is a big one for me. When I see someone suffering or in a difficult situation, I think it's not that I'm not moved with some kind of feeling of sympathy, but I can have a real battle at times with a fear of awkwardness. If I go to them, what will I say? How will I help? What if I say the wrong thing or can't be of any comfort to them? And and you notice again... We're back to the need for humility because I'm thinking more about myself than the other person. Or perhaps you feel the same. Or perhaps in hearing this, you're just thinking, I'm just not a very sympathetic person, full stop. I don't get easily moved by other people's circumstances. Perhaps you'd like to be, but you find sympathy hard to muster up. Well, where can we turn for help? Who has sympathy for those who lack sympathy? We already know the answer. Jesus, our high priest, is full of sympathy even towards those of us with hard, unsympathetic hearts. And he invites us to draw near to him, to ask him for help, to give us a heart that is more like his own. And with his help, we can strive and grow in drawing alongside others in sympathy. We can laugh with them and cry with them and pray with them And as a result, we'll see our love together grow. Now finally, alongside sympathy, Peter calls us to have a tender, or similar word, same word, compassionate heart. A tender, compassionate heart. 
where sympathy speaks more about entering into each other's joys and sufferings, compassion, a tender heart, speaks particularly of recognizing and meeting other people's needs. The word actually describes a, a deep, powerful feeling within us, so that to have a tender heart is to be almost physically moved within us when we see the needs of other people. The opposite of a tender heart is a hard heart that doesn't care about other people. So you get the contrast if you think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan man stopped to help the critically wounded man. The priest and the Levite, who were much more closely related to the victim, hardened their hearts and walked on by. But the Samaritan man couldn't walk on by. He was moved with compassion. He had to help. Tender, compassionate hearts are deeply concerned for the well-being of others and are ever seeking to see how they can help. And to be compassionate is, of course, to be like God himself. For a tender heart is one of God's most defining characteristics. In Exodus 34, verse 6, he tells Moses, The Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's a compassionate God. In the Gospels, we're told repeatedly that Jesus had compassion on the crowds, compassion on the sick, and most of all, compassion on sinners. And in fact, compassion, a tender heart towards people's sins and failings is an especially important part of what Peter's talking about here, of being tender-hearted. It includes bearing with one another's differences, weaknesses, and failing. So this is vital for us growing a church of love together. A tender heart covers over people's sins. Proverbs 10 verse 12, love covers all offenses. 1 Peter 4 verse 8, love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. A tender heart bears with others in love. It assumes the best of them rather than the worst of them. It makes us kind and gentle when other people's faults are on display. And that's always a reality. In any real living church, faults will be on display all over the place. But a tender heart makes us kind and gentle towards those faults. It enables us to exercise patience when other Christians don't grow in grace as quickly as we think they should. Perhaps most importantly of all, a tender heart is quick to forgive. Ephesians 4 verse 32, be kind to one another tender-hearted, same word, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now, as with sympathy, tender-hearted compassion may not come easily to us, but God promises that we can grow. The tender compassion that God first showed to us is itself powerful to change our hearts. Ed Clowney writes, we have received the free compassion of Christ's grace. Jesus himself bore our sins. He suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. The love that he now requires of us as his people is not a self-righteous, legalistic love working to score points for heaven. Rather, as those who are made heirs of the blessing of life eternal, we must model our love on the love of God in Christ. God's compassion demands love like his. Love that cannot be demanded, the love of free grace. Only God's love poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit 
can move us to show his compassion. And compassion amongst Christians in a local church family is indeed a beautiful thing. It's an essential element in the soil in which love grows. As is feeling and exercising sympathy towards each other, as is a mindset on unity in humility, as is seeing one another for who we really are, brothers and sisters in God's family. This, according to Peter, is how you grow a church of love. Now, just before we end this morning, just one more minute, I just want to ask and answer one important question. Why grow such a church? Why strive so hard to pursue this kind of love for each other? Well, the New Testament is replete with a multitude of reasons, all according to God's glorious plan and design. But, but I think most prominent throughout First Peter is this reason. Because of what it displays. How can people out there know that God is real? How can they know what God is like? First and foremost, God sent his son into the world to reveal and to rescue. But now in Christ, God sends his church, us, into the world to reveal his character. And to make known his power to save and transform. But ask yourself, what kind of transformed people would be the greatest witness uh, to the world of what God is like? Impressively rich and healthy people? Strong, powerful, self-sufficient people? No, we just blend in with the world. Our culture wants and selfishly pursues all of those things without God already every day. But transform a group of formerly selfish proud, even arrogant people into a church of loving people. Now you've got something that will stand out like a bright shining light in a dark world. Just take Peter. Once a brash, belligerent, domineering and arrogant man, now a man of compassion, love and humility. That's the life-transforming power of God on display. And our life together and our love for one another is a central part of God's mighty witness to a skeptical watching world. Just as Jesus himself once promised, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for addressing us, speaking to us, caring for us, and helping us through your word this morning. May our life of love together, Lord, Provide the most compelling witness to those who don't yet know Christ. May our pride become humility. May our insensitivity give way to genuine love and affection for one another. And may the world look on at your people and the love we have for one another. And as a result, be compelled to confess that your word is true. That Jesus is Lord and that you are mighty to save and transform human lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.